United States Institute of Peace, along with Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124, now present their weekly podcast. We're going to go, as I said, we're going to go metaphorically to Sudan now. Uh, Susan Steigant of the U.S. Institute of Peace, USIP, Director of Africa Programs there. Uh, Susan, welcome to the show. Thanks, Olivier. Good morning. Thanks for having me on today. I'm particularly happy to be here for the 150th episode of On Peace. So thanks to SiriusXM POTUS for the partnership. Excellent. Well, we're glad to. Uh, Please let me know how badly I butchered your last name. Oh, not not terribly at all. Stigant, but I I take all forms and iterations. Got it. Well, you know, as an Olivier, I can get a little sensitive about name pronunciations. (laughs) Fully understood. Um, So let's talk about this this peace agreement in Sudan. And uh, well, let's start with with what was agreed to and by whom. Yeah, you know, this this agreement um, takes place on the backdrop of of the broader transition that's about a year and a half in in Sudan, where the, the people young people, women, um, older people across generations and geographies really rose up, um, went to the streets, stage set-ins, um, put themselves at risk uh, in order to overthrow Omar al-Bashir, who had been in power for 30 years as a, as a brutal dictator and who stands indicted for, for crimes of genocide um, and broader human rights abuses. And so the agreement that was reached um, and signed ultimately this week comes between um, parties from Darfur, which people will be familiar um, uh, with, given the, the genocide that, that took place there um, several years back now, as well as some of the more marginalized areas that, that border with South Sudan. Um, these are long-standing civil wars that have been simmering and where violence continues. And a really critical step, one of the, one of the promises um, of the revolution was to seek peace. Um, and this is a, a really important step in in that direction. Susan, how solid do we think this agreement is? Well, uh, in the peacebuilding world, we say that the peace work only begins once the ink is on the paper. And so any agreement, the hard work comes in the actual implementation. In this case, I think there are two or three major obstacles um, and, and major next steps that we'll have to take. One, not all of the parties signed. And so there are some key groups in an area called the Nuba Mountains that that people may be familiar with in the news. Um, The Nuba Mountains is a place where you have a mix of people who have African and Arab identity, people who are Muslim and Christian, and people who had a promise that they would get some sort of autonomy back 10 years ago or negotiate their relationship with the central government. And that, that, that part has not yet been resolved in the peace agreement. There are also some holdout groups um, in Darfur, um, and some of whom who, who, hold, who hold guns and weapons and power, and so that needs to be addressed. Um, a second challenge is that this was, like many peace agreements, um, something that was agreed between elites um, signed in conference rooms um, and where communities and the women and the youth who I talked about earlier in the revolution, they didn't necessarily have a voice. And those are the people who were most impacted by the ongoing violence in the civil war over the years. And they need to be brought into the agreement to define what, what does peace look like for them um, and to ensure that there's a new accountability in their, in their government. Susan, uh, the polls and the anecdotal information I've collected tell me that uh, Americans are increasingly leery of uh, of overseas entanglements. Does this agreement require and do you foresee any kind of U.S. participation to to uh, help usher in the steps that you just listed? 
Yeah, so I think, um, you know, the U.S. has made a commitment to continue to support the transition in Sudan. Um, and um, I, I think the, the way that we talk about why that matters is that as we look at Sudan, it's really strategically placed. It borders with Libya to the north, with uh, Egypt, with Chad to the east. And so it's in what we think of as a really bad neighborhood. And there's an opportunity there to work with a partner government that wants to uphold democratic standards, that wants to to bring forward the values um, that are very much in line with the U.S. Constitution, I think what the U.S. society sees itself as as in the world. So that's an opportunity that's, that's good for U.S. national security. Um, the, other, the other thing that I always um, try to share with people is that the people who went to the streets, even the people who had ended up fighting and using violence, these are people who were, who were seeking freedom. These are people who were seeking their fundamental rights. Um, and so that's something that I think inspires everybody. It's something that, that we all aspire to and seek to do better. Um, in terms of actual commitments, you know, there's, the benefit is that there are a number of other countries who are involved. U.S. partners in Europe are supporting the transition. U.S. partners in the Gulf states are also deeply engaged. And that's an opportunity for the U.S. to think through how to marshal its leadership um, and to bring other partners on board to, to help to drive this forward so the U.S. doesn't have to stand alone in it. Talking to Susan Stigant uh, at the U.S. Institute of Peace, Director of Africa Programs there, tweeting at Susan Stigant. I can't believe I'm going to say this next sentence, but I'm going to, Susan. Um, some years ago, um, uh, when I asked George Clooney whether he thought China was ready to be a responsible partner in Darfur and Sudan more broadly, he, he said he thought it would. Where, where do we stand now with China's influence in that neighborhood, that bad neighborhood that you described? Wow, that's a great story. I'd love to interview you to hear you to hear about your your conversation with George Clooney. I was in I lived in South Sudan at the time of of independence, and so he he made several visits there, and I had a couple of opportunities for chats as well. It was um, one question. I mean, it was it was one question in the White House driveway, Susan. Don't get excited. <laughs> okay, well, I'm willing to stretch the truth if you are. Okay. Um, I, I you know the um, China is definitely involved and engaged um, in Sudan and in South Sudan. Um, China had um, significant investments and remains uh, part of the oil extraction um, in South Sudan. And oil from South Sudan has to flow through Sudan. So while they're two separate countries, they're, they're economically inter- interdependent, and really the peace and stability of one depends on the other. Um, China actually played uniquely for China and Chinese foreign policy, played a, an important role in the negotiations of peace in South Sudan. Um, they engaged diplomatically. They helped to create incentives and pressures, particularly on the government at times when the talks were really, really stuck. And and so I think it will be interesting to see how that plays out in the case of China, uh, in the case of Sudan. I would argue, though, that you know we're we're all concerned, and China gets a lot of space in the news and the headlines. When we talk to our colleagues in the Horn of Africa, in Sudan, in Kenya, and Uganda, they're equally, if not more, concerned about how. Um, the United Arab Emirates, how Saudi Arabia, how Qatar, and the Gulf states interact in their transition. And they want to be sure that the, the conflict that is ongoing between those states doesn't get mirrored in Sudan and undermine the, the really hard-won gains that they've had in their transition. That's an, it's been a long time, Susan, since I worked at Agence France Presse, so I'm not as up on my Gulf state influence in, in Africa as I once was, what 
what kind of uh, influence, what kind of effect are we talking about from Qatar, from UAE, from Saudi? Yeah, I think um, maybe a couple of really clear places that we can see it. One, there's been uh, proliferation of ports that are being developed along the red, the coast of the Red Sea. And as you know, the Red Sea um, borders and connects together the Horn of Africa and, and the Gulf. And there are investments by a range of different Gulf actors in this space. Now, these are economic port infrastructure, um, but there are questions about um, security of that port infrastructure and whether the ports could also be used to establish some sort of military presence and base, as is the case in Djibouti. Um, Last year, when Ethiopia and Eritrea signed their peace agreement, um, they actually signed the document in Saudi Arabia. Um, And while this was certainly something that was agreed between the Eritreans and the Ethiopians, um, there was um, funding that was provided into the central bank in Ethiopia at a time when the economic situation was pretty dire. Um, And there was sustained diplomatic engagement to drive this forward. Um, And then in the case of Sudan, um, last year during the revolution, when um, things really started to tilt towards some of the security actors and there was a a terrible massacre in the peaceful um, uh, sit-in, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates worked really closely with the U.S. and with the U.K., um, to make clear what the boundaries were in the transition and to come to agreement that this needed to be a civilian-led transition. And there's funding that goes goes in behind that. Um, Sudanese troops were the ones who, some of the troops who were deployed in Yemen as part of um, the coalition's efforts. So there's there's a connection point in various money flows as well as, as leverage and diplomatic um, engagement there. Talking with Susan Stagant, U.S. Institute of Peace, Director of Africa Programs, at Susan Stagant on Twitter. Uh, so let me just then circle back around to sort of try to try to wrap this up. If you were um, if you were in a let's say an airport bar and someone asked you, an American asked you why they should care about the developments in Sudan, about this peace deal, about uh, why why the United States had at a stake in what was going on there, what would you say? Um, I'd say um, three things. One, we should be inspired by the once-in-a-generation opportunity for people who have suffered some of the the greatest ills that humans can do to other humans um, to to shift and to push and to make some hard-won change towards a democratic system. That's what they aspire towards. And a democratic, um, accountable country where citizens and governments have a healthy relationship we know that's the best recipe for stability and peace. And we know that's good for U.S. Um, national security and for global security overall. So so I think there's a, a clear economic, there's a clear security case. Um, and there's a case for, for people who um, really believe in these values that are enshrined in, in the U.S. as a society and as, as a political body. Susan, I'm not sure how... how um how separate this issue is, but we had this weird hiccup with uh, Sudan recently where uh, at one moment they were going to normalize relations with Israel and then the next moment they weren't. And I don't know where we are now, but, um, but what, what is happening with that phenomenon? Yes. Um, so Sudan um, remains on the U.S. designation as a state sponsor of terrorism. Um, and this, this dates back to the previous regime, um, and there have been court cases in the U.S. that have found that Sudan, um, the government of Sudan, is responsible to compensate victims 
of bombings that took place of U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania um, in the 1990s. You probably remember that from your, yep. your, your time. Um, and, um, and so there's an ongoing court case. A settlement was reached um, with, with the victims. Um, however, there have been questions about the fairness of the compensation. And so um, along the lines of removing um, Sudan from the state sponsor of terrorism list, there's, there have been reports that as a matter of policy... That Susan, the US you're going to now- hate me. You're going to hate me. I wasn't watching my clock and I'm going to run out of time. So you're going to have to come back on the show and explain this to us, okay? I'd be happy to do that. Thank you so much. I appreciate all your time. This podcast has been brought to you by the United States Institute of Peace and Sirius XM's POTUS. Channel 124.